Today's Bible reading comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain, You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He attends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff.
To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of great power not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's uh, lovely to be looking at your faces and not a little black dot every week, which is so nice. And so um, it's going to feel a bit strange to do this again after such a long time to see your smiling faces. So we're going to try and uh, God will be so kind because God is so kind and then we'll get through Isaiah and um, see what God has to say to us today. So I'm excited to do this, to talk to you um, about a hope that keeps us going. And uh, and as we start, I, I'm mindful that um, if you are like me and my family, then you have been watching Flora's Lava on Netflix. And if you haven't, then shame on you because you're missing out on some quality 30 minutes of your life television. But Flora's Lava is the number one Netflix show of all time. It is stuck in the top 10 for the longest of any other show ever in the history of Netflix. It's, it's hilarious, but true. And the reason, I think, is because of when it was released. It was released in the middle of COVID lockdown, and it gave people 30 minutes of an escape. It gave them hope in something ridiculous. Because, you see, when you really want them to make it to the end, but you actually don't. Because when they fall in the lava, you cheer for them. And when they do make it, you cheer even louder because they got through to the end. And so it gave us this hope that someone can achieve something in 30 minutes and get $10,000 at the end if they get enough of them across. And so we've we've latched onto it as a society, as people in general. Uh, Maybe not you, but I'm sure each one of us has been looking for hope and finding it some way in a person, a thing, a TV show, food, anything, in the last few months. We've been looking for hope, we're searching for hope, and maybe you've found it in um, Flora's Lava. My kids love it, and there's a... Oh, that's the picture there, mister. They're playing Flora's Lava after watching it on the show as well. I should have clicked through that. Anyway. But what I want to remind us of this morning is that there is a hope that keeps us going because it's grounded in the promise and the character of our God. There is a hope that keeps us going because it is grounded in the promise and the character of our God, not in $10,000 from crossing a room full of lava, something far more secure than that. Which means there is a hope, we'll discover, that is incomparable to anything else in this life on offer for us. And the last few weeks, 
uh, of my life, Isaiah 40 has been one of my favorite passages to land day in, day out, week in, week out. And I often find myself, often in my morning bike ride, I'll say something like, God, I know that my way isn't hidden from you. I know that because it says it very clearly in Isaiah 40. But I can't quite see what you're doing in the nitty-gritty here and now of my life. And then I reflect on God's character and what I see in Isaiah 40. And it's been very refreshing for me. And so I hope that you will find the same thing today, the hope that keeps us going from Isaiah chapter 40. And that we will do, as verse 26 says, that we will lift up our eyes and see our God perhaps for the first time anew or refreshing for some of you that have been here for a number of years. And if you're not yet a follower of the God who we're going to talk about and explore today, then I encourage you to consider what does it mean to have your hope in God and not something else in this life? What would that look like for you to explore that claim of Jesus today? So when we get to Isaiah 40, as a way of a brief background, there's a very, very different change of voice and tone from the prophet who's writing this. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are one of impending disaster and exile because if the people don't return to God, they're in breach of the covenant with God, then one of the superpowers of the day, Babylon, is going to capture them as a nation and take them away for 70 years into what we call exile. And then sadly, God's people didn't hear God's voice through the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah and in 598 BC, Babylon came and decimated the nation of Israel. And then after 70 years of not living in their home, another king, Cyrus, of another superpower nation, Persia, he pipes up and he says, I'm paraphrasing this, but he says, those from Jerusalem and all the surrounding cities had a vision. Your God has said you should go back and rebuild the temple, rebuild your nation, because actually your God is a God above all other gods and he's told me to send you back and you can go. And for the first time in history, a nation captured by another nation is let free back into their land. You have to understand how significant it is. No one ever did that. No nation ever gives back land, do they? You only think of China at the moment, for example, or Russia and Ukraine, just to be, you know, talk about what's going on. But no one gives back land. No one wants to give back land. But this nation, you guys can go back to your land and rebuild the temple. But there's very little to get excited about if you're an Israelite. Just consider, there's powerful nations all around you. Do you have an army? No. You're worse off than Germany was after World War I. There's no government stimulus package or Centrelink, not that there was there anyway. Your home is lying wasted, it's desolate, buildings have crumbled down, there's jackals we read, and and, and, and dangerous animals crumbling down buildings everywhere. So you're walking through from a great life in Babylon, to nothing. The promised land that Joshua and and your relatives fought so hard for doesn't seem very great anymore. It doesn't seem much of a promise to go back to, does it? They're quite frankly a discouraged bunch of people in Isaiah chapter 30, between 39 and 40. And maybe that's you here today as well. But it's not that they didn't know about the goodness of God or God's character, they could do a pretty good job of telling you, as an Israelite, as God's people, who this God was. It just wasn't translating into their everyday life. As verse 27 says, My way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. The dominant voice 
you could hear at that time was the complaining of God's people. And so Isaiah in chapter 40 pivots from a voice of impending judgment and woe and doom and gloom to a voice of comfort and hope. If you'd like to follow along on your outline, please do that. You'll see that we're going to see um, a couple of points and then make two comments about what it means to live with this voice of comfort, the hope that keeps us going today. So please do that as well. So the first thing God does in verse 1, he gives a tender, a tender word of comfort. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. And the first way comfort comes to God's people at this time is not in their sin, but by having it forgiven, removed. And that can only happen by the great burden lifter himself, as verse 2 says, the Lord's hand has lifted up your burden, made it light. The tension here, of course, is that while their immediate uh, sin and rebellion, and why they went into exile is now over, we will see, if you keep reading Isaiah to chapter 53 and 55, that the actual sin on a person's heart, in our nature, who we are as people that so troubles us, that will not be forgiven until someone called a suffering servant comes along. So sin is still going to linger in the individual, but right now their corporate sin and rebellion has been forgiven by God, and they're going back. And the first way they find hope and comfort is your sin has been forgiven, the burden has lifted. You are forgiven. Comfort, comfort in that. And then in verse 3, the prophet calls out and says, prepare a highway for our God. And I love this imagery. It's very beautiful. He says, imagine that all the bumpy hills and all the mountains, they're going to be leveled like a block of land before the builders pour the slab with nothing obscuring your travel so that a highway, a broad way, not a path or, or a narrow way, but a highway to our God is accessible. And why do they need to do that? Because their God is coming and he'll lead his people on that highway into his glorious presence. Creation is going to bend and twist and collapse to let nothing stop in the glory of God going to his people and they becoming an accessory to that glory. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and what's more, the origin of this glory, the comfort, comes from God's own mouth. In verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. You know, we don't have to worry about fake news or about clickbait with God. Today, truth has fallen on hard times. Everyone is suspicious and skeptical of news when we hear it. And in a post-truth era, truth is the first casualty because everyone's now determining it for themselves. I found an article in the Los Angeles Time recently that said, we may live in a post-truth era, but nature does not. And it appears that God knows that too, because he goes on to say in this chapter so much about nature and creation. And he gives them hope through that, but not in the way that you think. Look at verse 6. All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flower of the field. The grass, what? Withers and the flower falls. Because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Do you know, our life is like grass. Here and then gone. That's the truth of it. 
We've particularly noticed that in our own country. In winter, it's green, and then 10 minutes later, it's brown. And sadly, most Australians prefer to ignore or not think about the reality of death. But the truth of the matter is that there is great joy to realize that we are limited and that we are mortal because we can then find comfort in something that is eternal and limitless, which is God and his word in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. Then we hear a fourth voice now through the prophet in verse 9 and 10. He goes up to a mountain and he's to declare, here is your God. Look, lift your eyes and see the sovereign Lord. He is in fact a warrior coming with all power and a mighty arm. And so this language of a warrior, of God having a mighty arm, it it sounds like Exodus language, and it is. We're supposed to think of the Exodus, which we're looking at, uh, and we will continue next week onwards, and how God's strong arm rescued them from Egypt to bring them to himself. And the comfort in Isaiah 40 is that God is going to do that again. He's not going to fold down the walls of the Red Sea. As we've seen, all creation will flatten, and his glory will be revealed to all. And it's like warrior language, is it not? In fact, one of Isaiah's favorite ways of talking about God is saying, Yahweh of armies, God of armies. He is the one to sovereignly wield all strength and power above all nations. And now he's directing his warrior-like arm towards his people. No longer in judgment, but as verse 1 says, in comfort and hope. And what does that do to you to hear this, to sit there, walking the path from Babylon to Israel, it gives you hope that God is for you. You don't have military might, you don't have financial peace, but Yahweh of armies is on your side. But it's only good to have a warrior on your side for five minutes. If God is that powerful, after the destroying has been done, after the nations are conquered, then you actually need someone to lead you to a better life. You need someone kind, not just strong. As every uh, anti-hero movie teaches us that, the the lead character is this gruff, strong man that is going to win every fight, you know, but he's not very kind. And then halfway through the movie, he meets someone and his character flips around and we now know that he's a kind person and he's going to lead them and he's also strong. And that's what we see next in Isaiah 40. God is tender like a shepherd, verse 11. In the Old Testament, In this period, calling someone a shepherd was another way of also referencing them as a king. The king would lead and guide and provide for his sheep, being responsible over them and for them. And that's what we see here. God is the one to gently lead and carry and to care for his people. You see, Isaiah reminds us that unlike any other God, you have to carry that around. Whereas the real God is the one who carries you. You only need to look at the phone in your pocket, where your money goes, the clothes you're wearing, to see how true that is today. And the fact idols, as we're going to see, are still alive and kicking. And as much as big tech and the entertainment industry does promote a picture of life, the reality is you end up carrying them around. They can't carry you. They can't shepherd you. You see, God's people will survive this, absolutely. 
They'll thrive in the midst of this, of course, but not through political alliances. They will succeed because Yahweh is Lord of heaven, the Lord of the armies, and he is leading them as a kingly shepherd, carrying them back to himself. And I would dare say that most of us would echo and say, yes, I can see that, that's really good. But the trouble is, the trouble is, does not God feel so small at times? Does not God feel like he is a warrior shepherd to them, but he's not to me? Because that is exactly the way God's people felt. And so with the prophet standing on a hillside, he says, behold your God, and now he speaks into the fears and the doubts that his people have. And if I go here, we're going to find there's a voice of no equal. Verses 12 all the way through to 28. A voice of no equal. And through a series of questions, God directly addresses their tired, fearful hearts. After all, creation and nations, idols, people, and space, they can't compare to God. After all, who is equal to God? I mean, which political leader has measured the depth and the water of the earth and held it in their hand? Which social media influencer or business consultant has weighed all the dust of the earth, balanced it carefully in a set of scales? Which CEO or podcast or scientific paper or social platform has instructed God in the way he should go? Who has an EQ that can rival and teach God? Which radio host or philanthropist or author can control the nations, influencing them like a drop of water in a bucket? Which scientist or Nobel Prize winner has been able to influence the way the earth is formed and shaped? Which influential family and businessman sits above the world, stretching out the clouds and creating the atmosphere? Which vaccine or which stimulus package or politician will deliver us from all our fears and lead us towards a better life? Which global alliance or local sporting group has enough sway to influence the decision of God? And which empire, Babylon or Persia or Assyria or Egypt or Greece or Rome or Britain or the USA or China or India or Russia or even Australia can have complete control over the other and blow them away like chaff in a whirlwind, not just for a few years, but forever? With whom then will you compare God? Verse 18. The best we can do is to grab some silicon or a person or a lifestyle, some clothes, the environment, being a parent, sports team, money, and and find our safety and security in those things and hope that they won't topple over with the amount of weight and pressure we put on them. And then when they do topple over, we wonder why they can't hold up to the place we put them in our life. Verse 20 says at the end, they hope the idol will not topple down. Do you not know? Have you not heard... Has it not been told of you from the beginning, says verse 21, that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heaven like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent. Who is my equal? Will who will you compare me, says the Holy One, verse 25. God's executive rule extends from the governance of his world all the way down to the people and the structures that manage our daily lives. But answer me one more question. 
Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created them? Well, what do you see when you look up? We saw it in the kids' spot a few moments ago, didn't we? Distant galaxies and planets. Light years and light years that stretch beyond the stars. Thanks to Voyager and Hubble, Curiosity, Juno, we're still seeing breathtaking images of the solar system. This week, Juno just went past one of the moons and the largest moon around Jupiter is now photographed. We can see it. Took it on December 26th. It took however many months to get to us. This week, we see it for the first time. Look up. But if you're one of God's people, you don't see those moons of Jupiter from the ground. You would have looked up. And what would you have thought of? You would have thought of Abraham. Back in Genesis, where God said, look up, Abraham, see the stars. Can you count them? No. You're going to have as many children as there are stars. And as we look up and we see them, God says, they're not missing. Not one is out of place because God is mighty and powerful. He has named them, in fact. He has placed them in their position, all the billions and billions of planets and stars, all known by God. And do you know what happens when you look up and see the pale blue dot six billion kilometers away or everything Hubble takes pictures of? How do you feel? How do you feel? Small, right? Wrong answer. That's not the conclusion we should draw. We should feel mortal and small when we look at the grass, as we have heard. But we're going to think different about this now. Just as God knows and created and brings out each star, so too he is doing the very same thing for his people, bringing his people home, calling them by their name, fulfilling his promise to Abraham. So why do you say in verse 27, the verse directly after that, your way's hidden? Why do you say my life is insignificant and disregarded from my God? All of God's creative power as we see here, is now focused redemptively towards his people in their distress. God is for them. After all, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He will not grow faint or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Verse 28. The Lord is the warrior shepherd. And he asked them all these questions to get them thinking. That's why there's so many questions. Think, what will sustain me coming out of exile? What will sustain the tired mum who hasn't slept? What will form our ministry plans into the future? What will shape my role at work as we come out of COVID? What is going to It's the God who will not grow weary or tired and whose understanding no one can fathom. There is no lapse in God's judgment. He's constantly on, functioning 100% capacity all the time. So why do you say God doesn't see my cancer treatment? Or that God doesn't see my reduction of work hours? Or that my children who are walking away from Jesus or my loneliness and my disconnection with others or my weariness in life or my discontent with life or my struggle with this particular sin? Why do I say that? He does say it. And he does not grow tired or weary. And he can truly, without toppling over like the idols of verse 20, he can truly give us hope that keeps going. It is a hope of God coming in all his glory. 
It is a hope of His Word enduring in our life, finite as we are. It is the hope to give us strength to rest and to keep going, as those famous words in verse 29 to 31 tell us. The hope that keeps us going is here. You see, if our future is not secured and satisfied by God, then we will be excessively anxious. That's just the fact. As God's people are here. And what we're tempted to do, what I'm tempted to do, is to often replace and eliminate anything that doesn't give me hope in this life. We say things like, my partner isn't working, I'll get a new one. This car isn't good, I'll get a new one. My job isn't working, I'll get a new one, because hope is fading here. We need to look somewhere else. Look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Where does it come from? He gives it. Who does he give it to? The weak and the weary. And no one's excluded. Not even a young person gets tired and weary. I mean, not even a young person, they get tired and weary. Yes, that's right, they do. Hard to believe, Damien. Young people still get tired and weary, I know. That may take a bit longer than you, Helen, but they still do. In fact, the young men in the second part of this verse, young men um, stumble and fall, refers specifically to someone chosen, like an athlete, or someone specifically set apart for their, their stamina and their health and their, their ability. A footballer, a buff tradie, you know, someone like that. But they grow tired and weary. They stumble and fall, don't they? If even someone like that in the prime of their life is going to stumble and fall, yes, we will too. Where do we find the strength to keep going? And so the hope that keeps us going is not longing for youth or a new spouse or a new job or a new church. It comes, no matter what season of life we're in, from a warrior shepherd. The new renewal that we need comes from a never-wearying God, do you see? And the great picture at the end, which was on the very first Bible cover I ever got given, was of an eagle with Isaiah 40, verse 31, embroidered onto the front of it on this Bible cover that I got as a new Christian, is of an eagle And it recalls to mind Exodus language again, because in Exodus 19, it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I carried you on eagle's wings. God is doing it again for his people, but he's not just carrying them. He's making them soar in renewal for a hope that keeps them going. Look at what it says. They can run and walk without fear of being faint, growing weary. It's not that the Christian won't feel tired or weary. Gosh, no. It's not that the Christian will not become swayed by other things. Of course we will be. It doesn't say that. It says renewal comes through hope in the Lord. So look up. Here is your God. Lift your eyes to him and conclude that in spite of our fleeting life, like the grass of the field, he will bring us to himself all in his glory along the twisty, tiring road of life. And you know that same warrior shepherd of Isaiah 40 is alive and at work today. And this is where we'll land. Two points. God is a warrior shepherd and God gives us his word. You know, when John the Baptist began his ministry in the gospel of uh, Matthew, and Luke as well, now I think about it, he said, I'm preparing a, a way for the Lord. And he quotes Isaiah here. That is, the glory of God is now coming to his people. The warrior shepherd is coming to his people. How? In the person of Jesus. And then we see Jesus, the warrior God, Yahweh of armies, in human form, the night before he was crucified, in a garden, confronted with violent men. 
And look how the warrior shepherd responds when swords come out. He says, put your sword back in its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think, I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. He doesn't, by the way. And then hours later, the warrior shepherd lets himself endure as they spit on his face and struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? He is Yahweh of armies. And as the day went on, he cried out from the cross. He gave up his spirit. The divine warrior didn't fight for his people. Sorry, he didn't fight his people or the nations. He fought for them by enduring their death on the cross in place of them. He carried their sin and rebellion and fears. He fought against the sin that plagues his people's hearts and lives. The sin that causes us to turn to idols and trust them instead of him. He did battle with Satan, sin, and death to reveal the glory of the Lord on the cross. And as the shepherd, he laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus is that warrior shepherd for us to find hope that lasts, a hope that keeps us going. Because he gives us his righteousness, he gives us his goodness, he gives us his sinlessness, he gives us hope the best is yet to come. And he gives us his word. Do you notice that at least four times God commands the prophet to speak in this passage? They needed to hear afresh the comforting voice of God and so we need to hear that today as well. Because after all, how often is God's voice not the dominant one that we hear? How often have we opened God's word to hear from him and been distracted not taken it in, not remembered. But you see, God's Word is not just a gift for me to open on Sunday for you to sit and listen to, but it's Monday before breakfast and Wednesday at work before a meeting and Thursday night while you're shopping, Saturday morning over smashed avo and eggs. You see, the hope that keeps us going is in Jesus and is revealed to us in His Word day by day. And so as we close, why not get to know the warrior shepherd today? and every day here on in this week. Let's pray. Our God, you are the warrior shepherd our souls long for. And we've seen your glory on display on the cross. You led us through death, through the other side, because you've walked for us, you walk before us, you defend us, you are our God, and there is no one like you. Father God, may we each lift up our eyes and find comfort in the God who is, who made all the stars, who calls them by name, who stooped down to a cross to lift us up into your glorious presence. May we hold to your word this week and find comfort in that, I pray. In your name we pray.